1: Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson, and with you today is Michael Stott, professor of English and American Studies at Baruch College, City University of New York, to talk about his new book, Mismeasure of Minds, debating race and intelligence between Brown and the bell curve. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you so much.
0: Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, so I'm- You've written several books, and the most recent Madness is Civilization is an Intellectual and Cultural History of Mental Illness. So what led you into this really contentious world of race and intelligence?
0: Well, this project really grew out of that prior book, Madness is Civilization, which was published by University of Chicago Press some years ago now. And that study had been um, an examination of a widespread conviction among psychiatrists that mental illness was largely a consequence of social factors. And that research um, put me on the trail of tracking political or, sorry, popular media discussion about the social and effective neurosciences which have become so popular in the 21st century and efforts to use brain science to explain just about everything in human existence and this research both fascinated and horrified me in equal measure but the fascination led me fairly quickly to look at the longer history of social psychological experimentation and psychological theories into human nature that dated back to the 1940s and that led me after some uh, searching to the Brown v. Board decision of 1954, uh, which really was the spark here because the Brown v. Board decision, the desegregation Supreme Court decision, relied so heavily on the so-called doll preference experiments conducted by Kenneth and Mamie Clark, um, which very briefly, uh, for your listeners in case they're not familiar, uh, the Clarks presented segregated black kids with two dolls, one black one white but otherwise identical. And the Clarks asked the children uh, a series of questions such as which doll doll was friendlier, which doll looked bad, and so forth. And the Clarks used the data they collected from the doll tests to conclude that segregated black kids had internalized a form of self-hatred. And it was this evidence that became key to the Brown Supreme Court decision that segregation itself was a was a kind of toxic space that, um, that really harmed the abilities of Black children to achieve in, in academic, in uh, academic settings. And while most scholars have really seen the Brown decision, which it was, as the culmination of a century long effort to desegregate schools, um, I also found that it was the beginning of another story, um, which briefly was a incredibly nasty racist backlash, uh, the terms of which I think we still live within today and which remains defined in many cases by the uses and, in some instances, uh, the misuses of psychological data.
1: Yeah, and, and so you mentioned Brown and and as the kind of start of this book, and you know a lot of your uh, this book is in the post World War II era, um, and these big changes that begin to happen in research. And so I thought it would be helpful for the listeners um, who aren't familiar with this history to talk a little bit about what are the dominant ideas about race and intelligence leading up to Brown.
0: Yeah, Brown really was a turning point in that sense because, um, and I would recommend your listeners uh, find uh, Stephen G- Jay Gould's masterpiece from the, the mid 90s, the second edition of his book, The Mismeasure of Man, where my title is obviously an adapted version of, because in the pre-war, the pre-World War II era, you have a very different universe when it comes to understanding race and intelligence. For one thing, the measurement of intelligence, which dates back to the first decades of the 20th century, really began as a not as a predictive tool, in other words, to understand how a child would evolve intellectually over the course of his or her life, but really as a diagnostic tool to just understand how to help kids better learn if they were experiencing difficulties but then when the concept of iq which originates in europe sort of comes across the atlantic to the united states it really very rapidly became politicized and racialized and i'll just give you a few quick examples you have psychologist henry goddard who conducted IQ tests on immigrants at Ellis Island in New York City in the first decades of the 20th century. And he found, again, perhaps unsurprisingly, since so many immigrants were not especially fluent in English, that a remarkably high percentage of immigrants were showing signs of mental deficiency. You have Stanford psychologist Lewis Terman, who argued that IQ testing could be used to track children in schools and to screen applicants for employment. And perhaps most dramatically, you have Harvard psychologist Robert Yerkes, who together with Goddard persuaded the U.S. Army during World War I to conduct IQ tests on every single man who had been drafted to the war, uh, which was approximately 1.7 million men. And the data they contended showed that men who came from northern European heritage had superior intelligence to men who were of African descent. And then in the 1920s, you have a series, the army um, mental Test get used for a series of federal legislative moves to severely limit emigration from around the world, especially from so-called quote, undesirable regions, in other words, non-Northern European regions. And in 1924, there's the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, which uh, had severely restrictive quotas on people from Eastern and Southern Europe, but also from entirely uh, banned people from the Middle East, from vast stretches of Asia, including Japan and India. And the other key point here um, in terms of where the psychological community fits into this discussion is that virtually every single leading psychologist, including a man named G. Stanley Hall, who was perhaps the preeminent American psychologist of the pre-war era, used their expertise to argue that intelligence was fixed at birth. So that's really the state of debate uh, leading into World War II, when everything changes.
1: Yeah, and and so you start to talk when, when these big changes happen. You talk about this kind of shift towards an environmentalist egalitarian kind of perspective. So, what, what does that mean for our listeners? Well, first of all, let's talk about
0: why it changes. It changes because of, it changes because of German Nazism. It changes because eugenic thinking and racial biological thinking. Um, you know, I don't mean to, to – to, to, uh, well, it gets an a, a extremely bad rap due to the, fa- the final solution, the effort to exterminate European jury, the effort to exterminate um, disabled persons, and there's a dramatic recoil. There's the reaction uh, against eugenic ideology, which is severe and intense and completely changes the terms of conversation, also, of course, among psychologists. So in the post-war era, you have a whole new generation of, of psychological thinkers. Um, a, few, a few notable names, Donald Hebb, uh, who was at McGill University, Joseph McVicker Hunt, who was influenced by the educational theorist Maria Montessori, Benjamin Bloom, Alison Davis, and a host of others who begin to argue, quite persuasively, that it doesn't matter where the child comes from. Poverty, it doesn't matter. Any child, born into any circumstance, is fully capable of making dramatic scholastic improvement given appropriate educational enrichment opportunity. So you have this rapid change in nineteen forty late 1940s and through the 1950s. So you have Hebb arguing, for example, uh, quite famously in 1949, that any difference in IQ tests between white and black uh, quite obviously, is the result of differences in educational opportunity. It was simply common sense. You have Allison Davis arguing through the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, that any difference in IQ between white and black had nothing to do with bio- biology and everything to do with inequities in social and economic structure. You have Joseph McVicker Hunt saying that improving a kid's environment is going to lead automatically to substantially faster rates of intellectual development. Um, it becomes this more, much more optimistic view of human nature. The fact that the brain is plastic and especially young brains can learn and gain dramatically given the right environmental factors uh, becomes a virtual consensus by the early 1960s, which is, of course, a complete reversal of what had been argued um, leading up to uh, World War II.
1: Yeah, and despite the fact that this has so much, um, this environmentalist uh, egalitarian position becomes so popular and gains so much power, one of the things that you show in this book is that racialist position never goes away. And there's this constant tension throughout this book that you bring out between the environmentalist egalitarian perspective and the racialist perspective. And one of my things that I'm really interested in is is why has this racialist position had such staying power in the post-World War II period?
0: Yeah, that is the $64,000 question, is it? Which is, why does something which I'm just going to uh, label pseudoscience um, maintain staying power? Um, and why do ideas that have no basis in scientific research or empirical evidence nonetheless have a life all their own? Um, I mean, that's a tough question, and I think there are multiple factors that go into it. But in the United States, um, in the case of the racialist position or the biological determinist position, um, I think there are several reasons overall for its longevity. Um, and for example, in the book, I refer to the biological determinist position as a kind of zombie science. In other words, it's it's a position that has really refused to die or that has died many times and yet has somehow uh, kept coming back to life. And I think one reason has to do with the way that the advocates of racial pseudoscience have presented themselves. Um, they have often and repeatedly presented themselves as the only ones who are really willing to speak truth to power. In other words they kind of self-reflexively take on board the idea that they are the taboo breakers they are the ones who are finally willing within the field of the psych sciences to deliver the unpleasant uncomfortable truth that no one else uh, seems to have the guts or the willingness to say um, that in other words there are really innate differences between races and so you have and he's a key figure in my narrative, a man named Arthur Jensen, who taught at Berkeley, an educational psychologist, and he repeatedly used the strategy. In other words, he regrets to tell us the truth that there are these innate differences. You have Charles Murray, who, after his colleague uh, Richard Hernstein, a psychologist at Harvard, dies in nineteen ninety four shortly after their collaborative book, The Bell Curve is published, Murray has repeatedly used the strategy in others who have championed the biological determinist position have repeatedly used this strategy. But of course, the truth of the matter is the exact opposite of what Arthur Jensen, Charles Murray and others have uh, presented. In other words, there there is no taboo that they are breaking. Uh, What they are doing is really restating um, with the addition of a lot of footnotes and some academic pedigree, what is, in truth, a very old position, one that dates certainly back to the 19th century and has its roots in eugenics, um, that casts inequalities in in, in society um, as somehow natural, quote-unquote natural. Um, And in a way, I think there's a perverse kind of nostalgia here. Um, In other words, they're looking back to an old order, a so-called time where everyone, again, quote, knew their proper place uh, with the whites In control and everyone else sort of in a pecking order under white jurisdiction and authority. So it it has a kind of appeal, I guess you can say, and a tradition um, that that has not uh, been successfully um, driven out of existence. And perhaps, I mean, I I hate to be the bearer of, of unhappy news, but perhaps never really will be driven completely out of existence.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I, I love about this book is that it's it's it of course spends a lot of time talking about how this sort of research impacts minority groups in the United States. But one of the fascinating things that you bring out is that just how much anxiety this new research um, uh, produces among the kind of white middle class about how you know, how you know worried they are about what this means for their own children and and their kind of obsession about learning difficulties. And this kind of really comes out in this chapter you have, which I think is my favorite chapter about Ritalin, right? so, I mean, so how does, you know, racial politics play into these debates around, you know, stimulant drugs and hyperactive children? And how does that kind of play into this argument that you have about whiteness?
0: Yeah, this is this was uh, a fascinating research project, the, the chapter on the history of uh, hyperactivity and stimulant medication and its uses, which date back to the uh, the early 1960s, really. And. It's a a slightly complicated story, so it may take me a couple of minutes Mm -hmm. to sort of unpack it. But basically, uh, the story begins with um, psychiatrists and pediatricians um, noting in the early 1960s that hyperactivity, which went by a variety of names, which I'll get into in a moment, was far more widespread than had previously been thought. And what's interesting about that is that there was no real way to measure or detect hyperactivity in children other than observation. And in terms of the symptoms that would allow or have a child be diagnosed with hyperactivity, I'll just list a few of them because they're incredibly vague. And, for example, a child could be diagnosed with hyperactivity if the child, for example, can't sit still or talks too much, or can't stay with things, or is unpopular with peers. I mean, these are the kinds, this is the kind of checklist that pediatricians and psychiatrists were using to diagnose hyperactivity in kids in the early 1960s. So in other words, you have a situation where almost any child at some point could be perceived as demonstrating a symptom which could gain that child a, a diagnosis of hyperactivity. And perhaps unsurprisingly, given the broadness and vagueness of the category, you have a dramatic, really tremendously dramatic rise in diagnoses of hyperactivity in course of the 1960s. And along with that, you have a dramatic rise in the prescription of stimulant drugs, and particularly uh, the drug Ritalin. Um, So basically, uh, what I What I began with, with this this chapter, was a question. Which which children were getting diagnoses of hyperactivity? Which children were being treated with stimulant meds like Ritalin? And which children were not getting Ritalin prescriptions, but rather getting um, a different diagnosis entirely, and were being tracked into remedial classrooms, uh, for example, or special education classrooms? And this is the fascinating thing, because the historical record reveals two completely divergent stories. One is the story of what people at the time, observers and participants at the time, believed was happening in terms of diagnoses of hyperactivity and stimulant drug treatment. And the other story, the second story, is what historians of medicine, decades after the fact, have reconstructed. In terms of what the evidence shows, what really happened. So let me tell you the facts of the case first. It was predominantly white middle class boys who were getting diagnosed with hyperactivity or what was called at the time minimal brain dysfunction or MBD, a condition which had been promoted by psychologists precisely so these boys would receive drug treatments and would not be labeled cognitively challenged. And would not be tracked into special education classrooms and at the same moment that white middle-class boys are getting diagnoses of mbd or minimal brain dysfunction and getting ritalin you have black children poor african-american children with many if not identical set of symptoms getting a completely different diagnosis and getting treated Mm -hmm. very differently so for example the diagnosis was called mild mental retardation my colleague um, mccall Raz has written a book called what's wrong with the poor uh, which i recommend to your listeners if they're curious to learn about that history about the evolution of the term mild mental retardation but so black kids and white kids are showing similar if not virtually overlapping and identical symptoms and are getting classed differently so what I realized, or what I learned, and a key takeaway of this chapter, is that an entirely new disease category is invented um, to label the learning difficulties of white Mm -hmm. middle-class kids, which in and of itself seems like a powerful admission of the absurdity of purportedly different differential Mm -hmm. racial IQs. So as you said a moment ago, it it reveals how anxious um, white parents and white white folk were, uh, to not get that stigmatizing label, uh, so much so that the medical profession sort of obliges and creates a news di- new disease category, which comes with this this treatment, uh, this drug, stimulant drug treatment. So in a sense, the whole history of hyperactivity cannot really be told apart from
1: its racial roots, in a, in a matter of speaking, is is what I learned. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that comes out in this chapter, too, is kind of African-Americans' uh, response to the drug um, prescription of Ritalin. I mean, how, what does that story look like? Right. Yeah. See,
0: that's the other part of this that is, uh, I think, so so interesting, is that, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the moment, in the 1970s, you um, while the truth of the matter, as historians of medicine perhaps have, have certainly demonstrated, it was white children who were getting prescriptions for and Mid- while children of color tended not to get that those prescriptions or that diagnosis that would lead to those treatments, but were getting a different diagnosis, at the time, um, the opposite was actually understood to be the case. So you have the black community. Arguing, um, across the country, it begins in Omaha, Nebraska. It spreads to Minneapolis, to Brooklyn, and elsewhere. You have a kind of national sort of outcry that, in fact, children of color, of color are being targeted by teachers and counselors for Ritalin, um, diagn- for Ritalin treatment, uh, in order to make them more manageable. Um, in other words, there was a widespread belief in the 1970s that African-American children were being overprescribed Ritalin, specifically as a sort of racist form of social control. And this leads to a, a Senate subcommittee hearing. And it leads to all sorts of um, a, a national outcry about the overprescription of meds to, to black kids. Now, meanwhile, um, Ciba, the Swiss manufacturer of Ritalin is running ads, monthly ads and all sorts of psychiatric and pediatric journals. And these ads have photographs of the most likely candidate for a diagnosis of minimal brain dysfunction and the, the child who is Therefore, should be receiving their drug, their patented drug, Ritalin, and every single advertisement during the 1970s that see Buran to promote Ritalin mm. portrays only white boys. So they they knew what they were doing. Um, at the same time, that there's a national outcry of over the overprescription or at the over the perceived sense that, that black kids are being overprescribed. Um, uh, stimulant meds. So there's this there's this disconnect um, there. And in that climate, you have the psychological community, you have all these well-meaning psychologists, and they're watching this happen. And they're watching the fact that it's white boys, white children who are getting um, stimulant med um, prescriptions. And they're watching black kids getting over-diagnosed uh, as having mild mental retardation and being sent to remedial classrooms. But in a matter of speaking, it became virtually unsayable to to, to argue that that African-American children were being underdiagnosed for hyperactivity um, because of the deep um, skepticism uh, at the medical profession more generally, which I think, you know, historically, for a host of reasons, which extends far beyond the research that I've done and that many scholars have documented, was really quite legitimate. It was quite legitimate to be uh, skeptical, shall we say, if not horrified at the notion that that medical science really was a kind of a move towards social control. Um, I don't mean to undermine the legitimacy of that outcry, but it did sort of tilt the debate in a certain direction. And I think, you know, as I also track uh, to the present day. Um, this remains the case. I mean, in the 21st century, African-American youth are still receiving diagnoses of ADHD. What, it, what becomes in the 90s, ADD, and then attention deficit disorder, and then ADHD, also in the course of the 90s, that, that black youth are still receiving diagnoses of ADHD. At the present day, it rates only two-thirds mm-hmm. of white children. So the legacy of this of this history remains, uh, remains with us. It, it persists to this day.
1: Yeah, but one of the other great findings uh, in this book is that when you're looking at a lot of these researchers, they never, were, were, they weren't the cl- not everyone you talk about are the the Clarks in the in the Brown case who are really thinking about races. They're they're conducting their research and, and writing up their findings, and yet their findings get pulled into this debate about race and intelligence. How does that how does that happen? Does it really speak to just this power of race that that, that almost everything is pulled in?
0: Well, I think that yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's again, it's not easy to to sort of parse exactly how this happens. It happens for 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 different reasons at different times, but perhaps one one key reason had to do. I mentioned him a moment ago, uh, Berkeley psychologist Arthur Jensen, who I mm-hmm. think has. Maybe been forgotten uh, in ways that say Hernstein and Murray because of their book in the in the '90s. The bell curve sort of has a continued kind of currency in terms of understanding its import. But but Jensen um, in the late '60s and through the 1970s was a really important and really powerful force to. To, to, to contend with, and and a lot of the people that I that I research, and I'll get to I'll get to them in a moment, uh, really felt on some level either actively needing to use their research to to argue with Jensen, or found their research being used to argue with Jensen, and, and you know Jensen basically was an early and very avid promoter of the racialist position of the bell curve um, through the 1960s and into the 70s. And he wrote often uh, many, many different opportunities to argue that even if you were to change the environment, in other words, improve the environment uh, that African-American children were living in, that those children as a group would maintain a a lower uh, average IQ than white children due to innate genetic difference. And really remarkably, uh, in retrospect, he had the chutzpah to argue in Life magazine around 1970, just to to give one example, that this news um, that black folk on average had lower IQs than white folk should actually be understood as comforting to African-Americans because they, they should understand that their lower IQs meant that if they did not succeed in life, uh, at least they would know it was due to their genetic inheritance, not due to their effort. So that's the level at which Jensen was making a very public and very sort of public relations campaign. And so many of the psychologists that I, that I researched or, or many of their proponents, people who took up their research um really saw it as important to to counter um, to counter uh, Jensen in some fashion and then by the 1990s when Hernstein and Murray published their book which in other words the bell curve which begins to argue for what they call cognitive stratification In other words, that there's a, quote, natural tendency for people of higher IQ to rise socioeconomically, while it's also, quote, natural for people with lower IQ to drift downward on the socioeconomic scale. You once again have psychologists and increasingly neuropsychologists or neuroscientists. taking on that as a challenge and arguing against it. So just to give a a few examples, you mentioned uh, in your question that there were all this, all the psychological research that would seem on the surface to have nothing to do with um, race mm-hmm. or intelligence, but got pulled into it. I mean, just to throw out a few examples, you have um, Martin Seligman's research on learned helplessness, which he begins conducting in the 60s. You have Julian Rotter who research on locus of control, which is taken up by another psychologist named Herbert Lefcourt in the 1960s. You have something called the interpersonal expectancy effect, which is better known as the Py- Pygmalion effect, which was developed by a Harvard psychologist named Robert Rosenthal. You have debates around impulse control and deferred gratification, which was developed by Walter Mischel, a Stanford psychologist in the 1960s and 70s, gets taken up by Daniel Goleman in his book on emotional intelligence in the 1990s. And in each of these cases, I found that although it would seem on the surface that these um, psychological theories would not really have anything much to do with race or intelligence, they do get sort of sucked into the vortex of becoming part very much a part of that discussion almost immediately if not immediately they become part of that discussion as a way to sort of counter um the Jensen argument that i mentioned a moment ago and then later the Hernstein Murray uh, position uh, in their book on the bell curve. So psychological research sort of gets pulled into this debate in in a very active way. And it does actually have um, significant policy quen- consequences. I think that was one of the things that I found most interesting and important about this research is that it—it it would seem that these theories would exist sort of outside of public policy, but they get pulled into it. I mean, I mean, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his now infamous study of 1965 your, uses gratification delay—the the ideas of Walter Michelle I mentioned just now—as um, part of his argument about the sort of pathologizing of a black youth uh, that the black youth lack. Uh, impulse control and therefore don't, don't are not able to achieve at the same level as white youth. So he cites Michelle. Uh, you have a variety of studies, um, policy studies, and debates around intelligence testing in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, which turn to uh, some of the theories I just mentioned in order to make their policy arguments. So it becomes kind of deeply implicated in, in policy and educational reform efforts.
1: Yeah, well, I'd love to end just by talking about this great line that you have in the intro that you come back to over and over again uh, throughout the book. And, and this is what you write. It It becomes apparent that there is a mismatch between the measurement tools used by all sides in the battle over race, class, education and intelligence and the enormity of the social and political inequalities that form the constant backdrop to the debates. So what does this mismatch look like that you're, you're writing about?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is part of something I discuss in the book as uh, sort of part of a wider historical phenomenon, which other scholars uh, have called the disappearance of the social mm. in social psychology, in which I also adapt as the disappearance of the social more recently in neuropsychology or the social neurosciences. Because the agony of all these discussions is that the real problem has has been and has always been rampant poverty, um, and 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 the difficulty that progressive-minded uh, policymakers and psychologists uh, have had in terms of making a persuasive and successful argument for um, educational intervention, supplementary educational opportunity, enrichment opportunities for disadvantaged children, and. There's always been the worry that if the emphasis is placed on uh, toxic stress, the toxic stress of poverty, for instance, and the deleterious impact that poverty has on the developing brain, that this could lead actually in, in, inadvertently uh, to further paralysis and inertia, a kind of blaming the victim perspective. Um, so, you know, in terms of this mismatch, um, I mean, what one sees, I think, in, in in looking at this history, is that this research about, or this this endless talk, excuse me, this endless talk about whites being smarter than blacks, uh, which is nonsense, has had two main purposes: so first, um, to soothe white egos, uh, even as uh, white economic horizons have been increasingly restricted. And second, to redirect funding um, away from public schools, and thirdly, um, perhaps also just to redirect discussion and debate away from the key issues, which involve social conditions, the environments and poverty, and the structural racism that has that has long been a part, uh, a core part of American culture and society. So, psychological evidence, psychological data. Uh, has always had difficulty because it's so inexact. And so it's increasingly not been able to take fully into account the, or even to acknowledge fully um, the rampant poverty aspect of this as it becomes more cognitive and more interested in individual attitude and so on. So just to choose one recent example, which I touch on in the book, but really extends beyond it, uh, would be the dramatic rise of positive psychology, um, in, in American life since the turn of the millennium, a movement pioneered by psychologist Martin Seligman. Um, because what you see here is really a kind of trans historical analysis. You, you have the arg- argument here that, um, the, the idea that, that things are the way they are because people are wired to be a certain way as human beings. And they're not another way because that's not how people are wired. And, and this has, um, a genuine appeal. It's, it's comforting in a way to a lot of people to believe that we're wired a certain way. But it, it, it sets aside, um, all these other aspects, all these social and socioeconomic aspects and, It simply puts them outside the frame of discussion. And the focus then is really more fully on attitude, individual attitude, and what is going on cognitively inside the self, rather than situating the self more fully in a very complicated and unequal economic, socioeconomic world uh, that we all, of course, inhabit. So it's a redirection of conversation. It's a redirection of debate. And while there are certainly psychologists who are pushed back against these sorts of analyses and this sort of trend – of the, as I said, the disappearance of the social, that is the trend. Um, and it has been difficult to really push back against it as fully as, as perhaps those of us who are committed uh, to social change, um, would like to see. And, and, you know, that's sort of where the story ends is it's kind of at a stalemate, I guess you could say, in the 21st century. You do have those who are making the effort. And then you have the, the rest who are. Uh, you know, for back, lack of a better word, either more, word more befuddled, more confused about how to use psychological data. And it's, it's a difficult impasse. And I'm not sure the neuroscience revolution has really um, overall pushed the discussion in, in really further uh, in the right direction, in the direction we would all like to see, which is addressing racial inequality, uh, socioeconomic inequality, and so on.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Michael Stop. this is a fascinating book. Thank you so much for being on the, uh, on the show for us, with us today.
0: Oh, thank you so much.
1: The book is Mismeasure of Minds, Debating Race and Intelligence Between Brown and the Bell Curve. Thank you for joining us on New Books in American Studies.